Welcome back to Haz Chats, where we're chatting about hazards, technology, and all the human stuff in between. Hey, it's Ginny. Hey, it's Josh. And we're following up from last podcast, where uh, we were talking about the bystander effect and vigilantism. And a natural question that came up between Josh and I afterward was, how do we get to this point of dehumanization? Right. Yeah, I mean, the internet is always changing and people are interacting so frequently that there's um, just so many examples of interactions to sort of explore uh, in terms of people's uh, behavior with each other. And you do see a lot of examples of dehumanization uh, in tech. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. And it's been really blowing my mind to see how much of it is out there. Um, And in every instance, you know, it causes harm. So we are going to dive into that today, where we're hoping to help everybody recognize it more and then maybe speak some truth into those that maybe have feel, been feeling a little dehumanized. So let's chat about it. So dehumanization, just as a definition, is when we sort of strip away the humanness from a person or group, and that makes us less likely to uh, help or empathize with that person person or group and more more likely to um, cause harm towards them. And we can see this uh, behavior in real life and and especially online. Totally. So, you know, what comes to mind is uh, when we think about the atrocities of war and genocide, how leaders have like pushed people to uh, see others as uh, non-human and, you know, or think of like enslaved people. Like, right. That's yeah. what traditionally comes to mind for me, you know, when I think about dehumanization. Um, but I, there's also another form of dehumanization called positive dehumanization. Dehumanization. Have you heard of this before? Uh, I hadn't until recently, and this is, I mean, uh, it's pretty bizarre to me just as a concept. But why don't you tell me what it is? Yeah, same. This is a new one for me, but it completely makes sense. So there's a positive dehumanization. And this is when we dehumanize people by elevating them to a status beyond humanity. So think about like judges uh, or authority figures that are beyond bias. And, you know, we just take that ruling as is. Or like Britney Spears and other famous people who have been harassed and stalked and gone, been victims of crimes. And the public just watched on because, well, they're a celebrity. Surely they're okay. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting to think about. Uh, positive dehumanization just because uh, well at first it sounds good but I think it sort of has similar uh, outcomes where the the dehumanization isn't helping people um, but there's people are yeah like like elevated beyond sort of their own humanity and are perceived differently and that leads to harm again totally I think People always say they want fame, but like being famous is actually like kind of terrible. A lot of times you're you just go from your house to hotel. Uh, it's hard to go out in public because you're constantly being stalked. Um, yeah, every time I learn more about fame, I always I'm like, yeah, you know, not a fan. <laughs> it sounds awful, and there's definitely. I mean, I I think a lot of like famous people are sort of humbled by like the fame that they do have, but I've heard a lot of people say things along the lines of like, I do wish that I could go back because it's hard to go back if you're famous or 
infamous, right? It's hard to become anonymous again. Um, so yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, urban legends or, uh, what are they called? Conspiracy theories. We're starting a lot of deaths of celebrities because, you know, a lot of times the only way out of fame is to die. Right. Yeah. Which is sad and horrific. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of connects to the, the paradox of dehumanization where we simultaneously regard people as humans and subhumans or beyond humans. Um, and, you know, this quote was really sticking out to both of us. Uh, the reason that people are dehumanized is so that their human attributes can be taken advantage of. Yeah, this one was really interesting to me um, because I think initially, like, my ideas about dehumanization were to sort of take a person or group of people and outcast them, like, completely from the idea of humanity. Like, oh, they're uh, – I mean, I don't know how many people consciously think this, but maybe sort, sort of subconsciously would think, like, oh, this person's, like, not human or less than human. Um, and when you sort of learn or I understand that, like, dehumanization – is still tied to like tied to the idea of being human and that um it's a little, little bit more complicated it just uh yeah it's kind of uh depressing but <laughs> it, it is and so what really just totally uh rocked my world was learning that dehumanization there is actually uh roots in disgust right and yeah. when we look at disgust you know why do we get disgusted with things well because they could actually be hazards Right. So we think about uh, rotting food that might be gross or icky well, and it has maggots and we're repulsed. Well, that's for our own safety. Right. We've we've evolved, you know, these disgusts for things um, in a way that speaks to that might be harmful. And when we apply that disgust to humans in a way that says you might be harmful and lowers them to something that is that level, uh, that's where we've kind of got this morphed evolutionary process applied to a social structure. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely... There's definitely a lot of sort of examples online of when maybe disgust or, like, contempt has led um, people or groups to do really hurtful things uh, uh, online just based on, like, dynamics on online and... Uh, yeah, it's really hurtful and harmful. Totally, totally. Um, and, you know, when we're in a space online that can be an echo chamber, um, it can be really easy for one sentiment to actually start getting amplified over and over again. And this was the case, and I'm going to bring it up again, so my favorite, not my least favorite examples, but it's so prominent, um, Facebook and the Rohingya Muslim genocide that happened in Myanmar where Facebook amplified hate speech and amplified uh, the dehumanizing uh, vocabulary. And, you know, vocabulary and words, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, are such a huge part of how we spread dehumanizing ideas. Yeah, uh, I think that's sort of a good segue into sort of the idea of dehumanization online mm. because there's a lot of unique properties of online spaces and discussion that I think sort of uh, enforce like dehumanization um, in online spaces. One of them is not 
so much on Facebook, but definitely a lot of other platforms is anonymity. Mm. Facebook is a bit unique in the idea that you at least have to have a name, uh, like a human name, and a lot of times people have a picture. A lot of times it actually is themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit more of a human aspect there. But um, anonymity, I think, in a lot of platforms leads to uh, these sort of like dehumanization echo chambers and then basically the format and uh, structure of most social media definitely enforces echo chambers and sort of positive feedback uh, loops. Mm. Um, and then same with vocabulary. I think when we look maybe examples like trending words or hashtags uh, can spread ideas very quickly and maybe influence the way we think about ideas. So whenever something is trending, maybe on Twitter, the the wording or like maybe, maybe the words that are used in like the hashtag or trending part might be really uh, might really inform the way people think about the issue or whatever's being discussed online. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you bring up a really great point about anonymity. It can be both. Uh, something that <laughs> worsens the problem or provides some protection. But um, anonymity kind of relates back to one of the fundamental things that dehumanization attacks, which is your identity. Right. And when you are pulling away or removing parts of someone's identity um, and their relationship to community, uh, that's actually a major aspect of dehumanizing someone. Um, and when someone's agency and embeddedness in a community are denied, they no longer elicit compassion or other moral responses. And the person that's been dehumanized may actually suffer more violence. Uh, and this is uh, Herbert Kemmler's research where, you know, looking at what are those specific aspects of identity and community, that's everywhere online. That's all social platforms. Yeah, I mean, it's that is really interesting to think about how maybe there does have to be some existing form of like human identity online before it can be really stripped away. Um, so maybe uh, Facebook sort of contributes to that in a way by establishing sort of a baseline identity for people. I mean, I don't know, but that's something to think about. I mean, <laughs> I think of like the little uh, gray profile like just kind of like the human head. Yeah. I yeah. mean, but at least it's the shape of a human compared to like GitHub where you're kind of like pixels. Yeah. And on Facebook, I believe you're required to have a first and last name when you sign up. I think um, I don't use Facebook that much, but I'm pretty sure everyone's represented by first and last name or maybe just name. Uh, but, you know, it's different if you're on um, Twitter or other platforms, you can be represented by just a like string. It can be whatever you want as long as it's unique. And so... Um, Think about Reddit users' names. Yeah, Reddit for <laughs> sure and... 4chan. Yeah, well, man, 4chan is a whole nother deal because um, there's not accounts or I don't think accounts are required. And there's... Actually, I don't know. I wish I knew more about how 4chan worked, but I'm pretty sure that Posts are essentially anonymous. I think depending on which part of 4chan you are on, they might uh, identify you with like a flag that shows nationality. Huh. Um, That's a community but I think for, aspect. It is a community aspect, yes. 
Um, and I think, but I think for the most part, it's essentially an anonymous. Interesting. I have to admit, I have not been on 4chan more than just kind of study it, but um, I don't, you know, for users out there, you know, listeners out there who've never been on 4chan, Josh, could you give a quick explanation of what 4chan is? Sure. Uh, I've been on a little bit. It's pretty, it's pretty awful. It's a, <laughs> I think, fairly old, like, image board forum site, basically. So people can create threads um, where there'll be the OP, who's like the original poster, and they'll create a thread with like a title and maybe an image and a, a subheading or like the body, essentially. And then people can respond uh, in the thread. And so everything's contained to the thread that's discussing maybe the original idea or just talking about whatever. And so you'll have uh, boards on 4chan that uh, broadly have different themes. Um, so there's like uh, one for, I think, politics and one's for art or uh, different things. I'm so that's a, that's, a, that's an aspect of community you can find on 4chan. I, yeah. I appreciate you explaining that. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's a really old uh, platform, um, but it's been one of the most notorious for echo chambers. Yeah. No, for certain, uh, it's very old and very uh, popular. And one of the things that's unique about 4chan is that it hasn't really evolved past sort of much older archetypes or sort of structures for... Um, online spaces. So when we compare 4chan to modern social media, it lacks a ton of the features. And I think that's sort of um, intentional, but yeah, it's missing um, like user accounts, like you don't sign in or log in. Um, there's not a lot of moderation. I think there's some, but I don't think it's very Common? Say, it doesn't sound like it's a super strong moderation, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I mean, I wonder how full. full yeah, maybe we'll do a little digging for y'all and kind of see some uh, how maybe 4chan has improved because that might be a cool case study example to kind of see how one of the more uh, notoriously bad platforms has improved if they have. I think most of the moderation on 4chan exists to remove like illegal content. Mm. I think. I think. Uh, what, what I guess like distasteful or rude or like things that would in a lot of situations be removed on other websites but that are legal are probably not but then again it's going to depend on which like community page you're on mm -hmm. like I know the politics board is um, awful but maybe if you tried to post the same things on like the art boards they, they might have different standards so that's a good point you know, and coming circling back, <laughs> a great tangent though. Um, circling back though to the dehumanization aspect and uh, the language that's used, and you, we brought up 4chan because there's a lot of anonymity there, um, right. and people can say really terrible things and kind of get away with it. Um, and that's kind of an individual case where someone says something, uh, uses language that dehumanizes, and then groups come in, and so that's a key distinct uh, thing to note. When an inhumane behavior becomes a social norm, that's when you've reached dehumanization. And that's kind of why we were talking about 4chan. But it's not just individuals doing uh, dehumanization. Uh, whole groups can be, you know, doing this. And we mentioned earlier the example of 
uh, like leaders leading uh, people into genocide, right? Right. So there's, you know, state organized dehumanization, uh, but that's usually focused on some aspect of another people group, whether that's political, religion, race, uh, culture, ethnicity. Uh, They usually target based on that part of identity. Um, But, you know, dehumanization can also be carried out by like a social institution, for instance, a a school, you know, university, a church. Uh, And that is something that's a little bit more uh, interpersonal, but also still a group. And, you know, thinking, Josh, Josh, you've just graduated. Hey, hey, hi. <laughs> um, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. Going to be graduating this term. Um, hey. Yay. <laughs> but, you know, cases where people may be dehumanized in a university, I think about grad students who uh, may be subjected to really long hours, even beyond their contracts, to do research and grade because there's an expectation you should be willing to go above and beyond uh, to be here, to be in this research. And, you know, we see this in med school and med students where there's not really a protection for those students to not burn themselves out with these hundred plus hour rotations and all sorts of things. So, you know, there's that idea that like, and I don't know if that's a positive or just other dehumanization where it's just like, oh, you're a grad student. You made it this far. You should be able to take this on and not feel the stress. Um, you know, where else have you know? Have you ever seen any dehumanization in a in a university in your experience? I wouldn't say firsthand, um, but one of the things, I guess, this is sort of like a general um, thing that I've heard from people, sort of secondhand, is there's just seems to me a bit of a these two conflicting things that happen in a lot of um, university spaces, which is like um, uh, how would I put this? So like a lot of people are turning like legal drinking age and stuff like that. So there's a lot of substance use on campus and then there's just a lot of um, people on campus. And I know that campuses sort of end up with a lot of sexual harassment or sexual assault cases. And I don't know if it's a broad trend, but I've seen a a lot of examples where um, schools are sort of trying to defend their image and end up really pushing away these cases or not taking interest in them because they don't want to draw like maybe attention from news or or things like that. So I think there's some amount of dehumanization where there's maybe a bit of conflict of interest between the school's who I believe are obligated to protect the like health and safety of their students and then um, like their maybe funding or like public uh, like opinion. Um, so I think there's uh, trouble there in terms of like uh, people's like dehumanization a little bit. Yeah. Or um, I know that uh, college sports, basketball, football, you know, these, these are students, right? So um, student life, we're all broke. You know, that's a reality. Um, you know, we may get like a, a salary, but I'll, I'll tell you what, it's not much. Um, and I think about students who, you know, they're, they're football players and college football is a multi-billion dollar industry. And professional football players are able to get endorsements and like make supplemental money besides just their salaries. But now you've got students who are kind of in that positive dehumanization where, you know, you're playing football, you're also studying, but you're not making a ton of money. So you're just trying to make ends meet. And there's even been cases of, you know, uh, student football players, not necessarily here at OSU that I know of, but I've, I've seen this in other places where, uh, 
you know, they may even struggle with food security. And these are these are football players, you know, and so we never think about that. But that's a real thing. Yeah, I lived uh, almost all of my life with the assumption that college uh, football players were paid uh, money just because it's it's so close to like professional sports and it still pulls in like incredible national viewership. I just that was an assumption I made. I was like, of course, they get paid something. Um, And I think they I'm sure they do get, you know, just like graduate students, right? We we get a you know salary, um, but it's it's not much, it, right? Yeah, it's a, it's enough to keep you going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you think about the additional costs, and the school will cover cover most of the travel and whatnot, um, but it's the idea that they were not given the same ability, um, you know, or agency to make money in the same way that another person in the professional field, like the professional NFL, could. Because they were lesser, they were students. Yeah, and I think them uh, being like active students who are still like part of the, you know, uh, student body of like a, a university, it sort of changes people's perception of like them uh, also being professionals um, in a sport or like semi pro or however you'd classify that but i think the the duality of uh sort of college players maybe uh, affects how people like perceive what they do totally and so that's the university big context right we've got this institution but i mean you can even see dehumanization happen in really small groups like a family um obviously cases of abuse but even in ways that um we may not have originally anticipated um, so without, you know, mentioning names, I, I have a, a friend who is deaf and grew up in a family that refused to learn sign language. Wow. And they, <laughs> they, you know, she could speak and they could understand her, but she would try to read their lips and, you know, went through massive depression and had a very stressful time growing up because she had a hard time understanding her parents and loved school because there were others there that could sign and treat her as a human that deserved that communication. Uh, and that's that's kind of a form of dehumanization to think about where somebody, people were okay with not giving you the communication that you needed, but they were, you know, happy to just still have you there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've never, I don't know any deaf people. Um, I just assumed that most parents would learn sign language if they have a, a deaf kid. I'm like, yeah, that's crazy to me um so that's awful but (laughs) yeah it's i mean it it's horrific it's a kind of a form of abuse Um, yeah i mean i would think so yeah one thing that's interesting i mean i do think uh people that i think i do think families with deaf participants should learn sign language but uh one of the great things about the modern age is it's much easier to communicate with deaf people because we have phones. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really cool, um, just in general. That's like a positive thing that I think about sometimes. Yeah, and that 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 could be something that helps bridge that that gap, for sure. Um, and you know that that kind of segues us really well into you know tech. It can be both a humanizing factor, but then also a dehumanizing factor. Um, you know. When we think about our, you were mentioning earlier, identity online and social networks, um, often also the content of what we're seeing 
can impact how we are actually dehumanizing ourselves. And that's that's a that's a kind of crazy thought. How would someone be dehumanizing themselves? Well, research has actually shown that um, you know, and I'm going to quote them here. There's a normative emphasis on the female appearance that causes women to take a third person perspective on their bodies. So that's a kind of psychological distance that women may feel from their bodies uh, because we're judging ourselves. I don't look as good as so-and-so. I'm not as fit. I'm not as tan. Um, and the other aspect of this is that there's passive consumption of sexually objectifying content on social networking uh, has actually been shown to result in lower body satisfaction and self-esteem, particularly in women. Uh, and this is from Plager et al. 2021 in the frontiers of psychology. So, you know, being exposed to, you know, tons of, you know, sexually objectifying content, it's kind of a huge part of Instagram. Yeah, uh, I think it's a huge part of a ton of um, time online. I think sort of like, you know, objectification slash sexualization of women is something that like absolutely predates the internet, but has totally grown with the internet and is still a huge part of the internet. And yeah, like sort of the idea of like beauty standards and like body standards really, really heavily impact um, people online, um, especially young people. Just the idea of how am I supposed to look? Mm -hmm. um, and actually it's really interesting you brought up Instagram. Um, because there's a interesting phenomena that happens regarding like sort of, I think mostly teens, but probably everyone to some extent and depression, sure. which is where the, when, when we post uh, online uh, on Instagram or something, we really sort of cut out the best parts of our lives or maybe mm -hmm. the things we're most proud of or the things that we're happiest with. Mm -hmm. And so if you're someone who's like scrolling Instagram, what you're getting is like the the very like best and curated moments from everyone's life. And I think that can uh, really affect people because they think, well, I don't, my life isn't like this, yeah. but no one's is really. It's just when you get sort of flooded with that, you might think differently about your own life. And I, um, the human experience has suffering and struggle. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, that that idea that you have stripped away that human, very real human part, that's also dehumanizing, where we only see the highlight reel. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't even think about it that way. That's a really good point. And, like, seeing that, yeah, that aspect of only seeing the highlight reel can, yeah, do that to you. Um, you know, another place where if we remove other human aspects of uh, you know, with tech um, is, you know, we can dehumanize by using recruiting algorithms when we're hiring. Because hiring a person is really assessing their skills, but also that human context of what they bring by their experience and their, their life. So, you know, now, though, we may have algorithms that are searching through thousands of applications just looking for keywords. Yeah, uh, definitely part of the, like, applicant process is making sure that your resume is like parsable by like PDF readers and um, a lot of like LinkedIn and stuff will look at your uh, resume and say like, hey, this is great, but 
if you're applying for these positions, you probably want to include this word, this word, this word, and this last one because, yeah, there's a ton of, I mean, that that uh, industry has been heavily automated, at least sort of like the first stages where, you know, it's very easy to take a, um, a program and say, okay, I've got uh, 200 applications. I really need to trim it down to like 30. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I'm feeling that right now. <laughs> You know, and on the on the one hand, you know, I, I totally also feel for employers, you know, especially startups, you know, this last hiring round, we had over 300 applications. Yeah. No, I mean. And <laughs> I mean, and I went through all of them myself. <laughs> it took a while um, to whittle it down to the top 10, top five. Um, it's very time consuming and it's hard to remember every single attribute. Um, but in the end, you lose something when you automate that and you lose the potential to find a really incredible person by trusting an algorithm. And that, that kind of also speaks back to how a lot of platforms may be doing their moderation or protection. If you're using an algorithm to catch hateful keywords or uh, certain you know misinformation speech, you're gonna miss stuff. Yeah, that's a, a kind of funny segue into like automated moderation just because it's really, really difficult to it's really hard to like create automation for uh like online behavior and like uh text i mean i don't probably in voice it's nearly uh impossible unless you're using like speech recognition and trying to identify like bad words or something but tone inflection yeah yeah uh definitely i i know i'm sure uh all, all sorts of platforms have different um approaches to like moderation i'm sure a lot of it is automated but i mean there's just so many um things that people will do to sort of bypass those or things that uh things that the algorithm might identify as harmful which aren't because because language is so complicated and really difficult um yeah that's a really tough that's a really tough job to do without uh humans yeah so the truth of the matter here is if you're online, you're not safe. So let's <laughs> just put that out there. Um, and there's not really a lot of uh, immediate hope for that perfect moderate, moderator algorithm. Like Josh was, Josh was just saying, you know, um, it's going to be a while because it's very nuanced. And, you know, some of the key things, though, that you, human uh, listening here, can look out for uh, is the language. And this kind of also goes back to uh, that disgust idea. And I, I want to call out Brene Brown uh, and her book, Atlas of the Heart, because she does a whole chapter on this and it was brilliant. Um, and she talks a lot about Herbert Kemlin's work, but it's that same idea that when we apply a disgust term, so think about like infestation, swarms, uh, you know, that harms the, the person's referring to. It also harms others' perception of them. So I think about like immigration and we th- call them, we call people that are, uh, you know, coming in mass swarms of immigrants. Right. Yeah. That's horrific. There's definitely, um, I-, I think when people are in large numbers, uh, there's definitely an aspect of dehumanization. I remember there's some kind of like quote or saying that something like a thousand deaths is a statistic and a single death is a tragedy. Yeah. Um, that was actually Stalin who said that. Whoops. 
<laughs> no, I mean, you can kind of you can kind of uh, hear the dehumanization in there, right? You just become numbers. I think it was yeah. one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Sure, yeah, no, I, but I think that's really true. Um, yeah. When you, uh, when there's a single or like a countable number of people, like we're able to sort of identify each one and keep track of them and understand who they are, and there's just a number where we can't do that anymore. And that is, I think, inherently uh, dehumanizing in, in some form. Totally. Uh, you know, where I first heard that quote was actually in my epidemiology class where we count numbers yeah, <laughs> for health. Exactly. And day one, Dr. Bethel was like, this is what, uh, you know, one, <laughs> one death's a tragedy, million deaths is a statistic and uh, welcome to epidemiology where we <laughs> do statistics of people and population. Um, so, you know, there's use for that, but we have to make sure that we're remembering those points, those numbers. Those are actually human lives, you know. Yeah, for sure. And just because someone has a disparity, whether that's uh, a health-related, economy-related or other, uh, they are still just as human as you and I and everyone. No one else is above the other. Um, and when we start applying non-human names or a uh, way that we refer to people, so uh, I think about, um, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, Nazis called Jews rats. Yeah, or like when people use slurs. Yeah. That's one of the things that um, I guess, like I've heard people online say things along the lines of like, well, it's just a word or it's just like, you know, words can't hurt you, that kind of idea. And definitely that's not true. Um, yeah. But I think there's a really probably like one of the most important aspects of slurs is that it just takes away the sort of human identification of a group of people mm -hmm. and it's like recategorizing them as something else um or, right i mean yeah that recategorizing as something else or negatively associating them with something that right. could cause disgust yeah um and i think about like um you know asian american hate crimes right now that are happening and then there's they're on the rise uh, and a lot of people are saying that's because of their, the idea that people are ex uh, expressing their hate for COVID and are associating that mm -hmm. with Asian Americans um, because, you know, COVID started in Wuhan, China. And right. it's, you know, that idea that when you are seeing any type of behavior online that is associating a person in a form that is towards disgust or you know, a lack of safety in a way that they're pushing them to the other, that should put up a really big red flag. Yeah, and I, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's just like the real big problem with people and sort of how we understand language because I remember specifically with like COVID and sort of um, like Asian American like violence. Um, I know Trump was catching a lot of backlash for wanting to call it the China virus. Uh, or things like that. And it can feel like an easy defense to say like, well, it did start in China and well, it's just like how they're identifying it. But there's a really clear like um, sort of like uh, blame or like there's like the language is, is uh, actually really impactful and hurtful. And so that's, you know, why we wouldn't want to do that because COVID is a worldwide mm -hmm. uh, problem. And there's no, I mean... Could have started we, anywhere. Yeah, we can understand that it did start in China, and that's like a fact, and that's okay. But identifying it currently as like a China virus is mm -hmm. um, 
not helpful and not I mean, it's not really that anymore. It's a worldwide virus. Absolutely. So, you know, anyway. Yeah, no, and that was a very harmful statement that a leader said. <laughs> I know, right? And that's that's the other thing is if you are a person in leadership, your word goes so much further, not just to the masses, but to the people that you're addressing. Um, because people look to you for protection and guidance. And when you dehumanize them as a leader, that's a double whammy. That's the worst. Yeah. Like you're in a position of authority and people can sort of appeal to that. And they say, well, he's the president. Like it's okay to say if the president does and well, uh, maybe not. So (laughs) yeah. Question your leaders, folks. Question your leaders. (laughs) Don't just take their word for it. Um, But, you know, one thing I thought was interesting with dehumanization is that uh, dehumanization can <laughs> dehumanization can change over time? So dissecting cadavers uh, back in the Middle Ages, actually, or Dark Ages, was actually seen as uh, dehumanizing, but now we use that in right. medical school. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I don't know enough about the history of like, um, like a, uh, science on using like human cadavers. Um, but I definitely know that it was very not right to do a long time ago. And uh, I guess that would sort of be like a positive aspect of dehumanization would be our ability to find ways to use people as resources, which is um, overwhelmingly probably negative, but maybe in (laughs) in certain aspects of medical science could be uh, really, really important. Yeah, that's a slippery slope. That yeah, was a slippery slope. I, I definitely don't endorse it as a general idea, but you know, there's a. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, humans are valuable in many ways than one, and this goes back to that point that dehumanization is denying certain parts of the human existence because you want to take advantage of those other parts of the human existence, and you know, existence is kind of a interesting term in the sense that they're dead. Well, yeah, I mean. There's definitely a huge difference between, I mean, maybe someone being like an organ donor where they like are consenting to how their body's treated after post-mortem or, you know, whatever. And that, or that between like me going out to the local cemetery and just digging. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Yeah. Like uh, people for the most part uh, probably don't do too much at least when they're young, thinking about, like, how's my body going to be used when I die? But um, definitely better to – I mean, there are programs that we have where it's, like, especially when you sign up for, like, the DMV and you can choose your or- organ donor status, uh, things like that. It's great. So as we're wrapping up the podcast, we are kind of circling back to an idea that we end up uh, a lot of times, which is, like, what's the takeaway? And – this is what's always tough because um, the internet is a really unique and special place. And a lot of times it feels like we don't want to mess with it too much. Uh, or we could like, you know, destroy something that's valuable. Um, and every change you make on the internet has, you know, four or five outcomes that you didn't see, you didn't anticipate, right? It's such an enormous space that it feels like like the smallest changes are going to have serious and enormous impacts on um, its its users, which is, I mean, nearly everyone at this point. So we always end up 
in the same spot a little bit, which is just be nicer on the internet, which is um, true. You should be nicer on the internet, um, but it, it always does draw up questions about how much um, how much change can we meaning actually well so two things it's how much change are are we able to make mm -hmm. as designers and as consumers of the internet like what's our um modem of control right and then the second part is if we exercise that control um you know how much good are we doing and can we measure that mm -hmm. and that's why it's really interesting and uh, important to look at the research that's being done on people's behavior on the internet and features of the internet um because we're still trying to learn. It's such a vast um, space. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, and as, as vast as it is, as it is um, you know, we've mentioned this before, the internet is still a wild west. Yeah. And oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a scary place. And, you know, thinking about the next generation of internet users, um, you know, they're going to be dealing with the same problems we are, if not more, and hopefully less. Hopefully we do find ways to mitigate, prevent, and reduce some of the harms that we see here. And we learn from the giants like Facebook, um, you know, that went first before us. You know, as much as I, I dog on Facebook for really horrific <laughs> abuses. Yeah, um, serious stuff. You know, I, I really want to believe that there was never an intention to really cause harm. There just was no intention to protect. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've kind of said similar things before, but, uh, the internet was such a sort of like headfirst space where things were just being created all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes things just sort of stuck and it was really mostly unregulated and mostly like community driven and driven by just people in their homes who were creating things that had never been made for the first time. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, we're in a time now where we have the advantage of being able to sort of reflect on early stages of the internet and internet culture, mm. and we can change the way we behave and the products that we create, um, which is neat. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's good that we say this and we reiterate this because we want to make sure that everyone has realistic expectations of danger. And if you're not in computer science or your background isn't in tech, you may not be fully aware. Most people are not fully aware of what's on the internet. That's it's just huge. And unless you study it, you may not know. So our goal here at this podcast is to want not overwhelm you, but to help equip you with the tools uh, and knowledge that if you see something on in the wilds of the Internet, uh, you know what to do. And as we've been talking about this, you know, I, I admit I've felt and seen moments in my life, you know, and reflected on that where I have felt dehumanized in different spaces um, and it doesn't feel good. It feels it feels really, really terrible, actually. Um, and, you know, for our listeners out there, as you're listening to this and you're seeing instances uh, that you may have felt dehumanized or were dehumanized in different ways. Um, yeah, I, f I feel with you. And I want to speak some truths uh, to you and to to those um, that to people that are feeling, uh, you know, dehumanized in any way. One, you're worthy. Every human is worthy, worthy of respect, worthy of humane treatment. Uh, and that's all humans. No matter how different they are from one another, every human is still worthy of basic human rights. Um, and just because the Internet hasn't caught up to that yet 
doesn't mean it's still not true. We can acknowledge that the internet is both a good and a very dark and bad place. Um, and it's a necessary aspect of all of our lives. Yeah. And on top of that, um, you not only are you worthy of uh, humane treatment and respect, but you also have a responsibility to give that same treatment to others. So, yeah. you know, you uh, part of being treated well on the Internet is fostering that environment where people feel the same way. And so we all have a responsibility to try our best to be respectful and uh, thoughtful about uh, other people online. Absolutely. And if something ever feels off about a behavior, it makes you feel less than. And it may not immediately resonate why, whether it's the language, the imagery, um, the context, and you don't know why, but you feel less than. You may have to draw protective boundaries around yourself to protect yourself. That's a very real reality that you may have to pull yourself away from that place on the internet or from that person uh, or those people that are that are doing this to you. Um, and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good, especially when it's happening or people that are close to you, like family members are applying, you know, inhumane behavior. Um, but giving yourself the, your permission, yourself the permission to love yourself, protect yourself and remove yourself. You are worth that. It is okay to protect yourself. You do not have to please anybody um, and lay down yourself just for someone else. You are worthy of protection. So um, things that, you know, you can continue to look for as y'all are on the internet, the language. If anybody is using language uh, referring to a human that is anything less than human, for instance, we said earlier, uh, using anything that draws in feelings of disgust, rats, vermin, uh, swarms, anything that is not uh, good, really. Or even, you know, think about this, like, users. We use that in the tech world all the time. Yeah, users. for sure. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different terms that we use to refer to groups of people, like uh, taxpayers or mm -hmm. users or um, all sorts of things. So, yeah, no. One for time. Sure, for sure. Yeah, one time that we started kind of using around in the hazards team was the gentle public. Yeah. Uh, what? For Let's like, talk about that. <laughs> so the gentle public, uh, rather than untrained civilians, which sounds very military, very... I, I, it Maybe kind of, demeaning a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. The gentle public. The gentle public. I like that. You like that? Okay. And yeah. that, it reminds me of um, Dear Abby. She would say gentle readers. <laughs> I love I love Dear Abby. But yeah, so you know, watch for that language. You watch your language, even in jest, watch your language to not dehumanize others. Um and how do you how do you battle uh dehumanization? How do you fix it? How do you do that? Um the answer we're gonna talk about in the next podcast is compassion and how we can actually incorporate that into our technology. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Jenny. This is Josh with a reminder that every person that you interact with online is human, mm -hmm. just like you, and they are worthy of humanity, and they are worthy of humane treatment, as we are all adapting. Also, I just want to shout out uh, to you, Josh, and to our podcast editing team. Uh, this is our 10th podcast, so we have officially oh reached my gosh. double digits. 10 episodes, yeah. of which I think I've 
been in maybe seven of them. I think I think actually eight. <gasps> oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, seven at least eight for sure. Yeah. Yeah. This has been an awesome opportunity to get to chew through these big tech ideas. So here's to ten more, and then I quit forever. No. What? <laughs> <laughs> He's kidding, folks. I'm just kidding. I mean, I don't know. I He's am. Kidding. <laughs> I am quitting. Sorry. What?